This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. The world has lost a great climate scientist. From Australian National University, Professor Will Steffen passed away following his fight with cancer. Australian newspapers listed out Steffen's leadership positions in that country and global projects like the International Geosphere-Biosphere Program, plus the Stockholm Resilience Centre. But the media did not cover Will's fundamental new visions of how the climate on this planet actually works. Stefan brought out the doom of hothouse Earth, yes, but he also left a possible shelf where the hotter world might rest. He worked with teams outlining planetary boundaries, not just tipping points, but the ways complex natural systems interact and feedback. He led the legendary 2018 paper, Trajectories of the Earth System in the Anthropocene. In 2020, as the pandemic set in, Will Steffen joined 250 scientists and experts to publish A Warning on Climate and the Risk of Societal Collapse. We owe him so much. We owe him the chance to explain it all in his own words in two key Radio EcoShock interviews. I just listened to them again. Timeless. His work is deep and disturbing. His inner voice was brave and pure, but not strident. Stefan sets the stage for events unfolding for the rest of our lives and well beyond. Here is the late Will Stefan on Radio EcoShock, first in 2018 and then in 2020. This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. With new heat records set all over the world... Planet Earth is hurtling towards a new, hotter state. But how hot? Are there landing spots that are safe enough for a human civilization? We get a big step towards answers with new science published by the National Academy on August 6th. The title is Trajectories of the Earth System in the Anthropocene. The paper is from a distinguished team of scientists led by Dr. Will Steffen. Will was educated in the American South and transplanted to Australia, where he led research institutes and advised governments. Currently, Dr. Stefan is an emeritus professor at the Australian National University and a counsellor with the Climate Council of Australia. He's also a senior fellow at the Stockholm Resilience Centre. Will Stefan, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you very much. Now, to begin, for the layperson, is there a difference between a tipping point, as popularized by Al Gore, well, 12 years ago, and the thresholds that you look for in this paper? No, they're pretty much the same thing. We, we use the term tipping element, which is actually the physical system which could, within it, have a tipping point or threshold. So uh, those uh, two terms are used pretty much synonymously. In our paper, what we're trying to say is that in addition to individual parts of the Earth having tipping points, example being the, the Arctic sea ice, or perhaps the Amazon rainforest, uh, we're talking about uh, a number of these things acting together. Well, I'd like to go through the four main questions you worked with in order, and they're understandable to all of us and go far beyond just scientific curiosity. These are things we need to know and that governments need to know. So question one, quote, is there a planetary threshold in the trajectory of the Earth system that, if crossed, could prevent stabilization 
in a range of intermediate temperature rises? That's a pretty scary question, isn't it? Could you explain it a bit? Yeah, look, I think the, the, the dominant framework for the climate change issue is that our emissions of greenhouse gases will be the dominant driver no matter how hot it gets. In other words, the more we emit, the hotter it gets. Once we stop emitting, the Earth is going to stay there. In other words, we could park it at 2 or 3 degrees and it'll stay there. We're saying that the Earth is not a simple system. It's a complex system. And a lot of complex systems have behavior which uh, looks at sharp transitions between a couple of well-defined states. So our argument is that there are a number of individual tipping elements that have their own thresholds in the Earth system, plus some other feedbacks which may not have thresholds but still accelerate climate change. These can act together like a stack of dominoes. When you start pushing one domino, it knocks another off and another off, and together that line of dominoes falling constitutes a planetary threshold. So we are um, hypothesizing with a fair bit of evidence that there exists a planetary threshold somewhere probably between one and a half and two degrees and, and four degrees, that if we go across that, the, the Earth system, it's going to move to a much hotter state out of our control. So that's, that's basically what that first question is designed to address. And in our paper, we say, yes, there is likely to be a planetary threshold. And you've already talked really about the second question, which is, if there is a threshold, where is it or maybe when is it? And uh, you've, you've touched on that. So question three, uh, quote, if a threshold is crossed, what are the implications, especially for the well-being of human societies? Okay, well, there are whole books written about possible impacts of a hotter world, but can you give us some clues? Yeah, well, one of the things you'd obviously see is, is an enormous increase uh, in extreme weather events. Uh, and we're already seeing some of this, but this would be extreme weather on steroids. It'd be fires, droughts, uh, extreme heat, big changes in rainfall, extreme rainfall events, uh, worse tropical cyclones or hurricanes in the northern hemisphere, and so on. That's an obvious one. But I think another one that's sort of a sleeper there that people don't think about so much is that we have designed and built our, our civilizations around reasonably stable patterns of uh, temperature and rainfall. For example, big agricultural zones, central USA is a good example, western Europe is a good example, uh, Indo-Gangetic Plain, northeast China. These together feed billions of people. And if we cross the threshold and rapidly go toward a hothouse earth state, all of those systems are going to be disrupted. And it's hard to predict exactly how they're going to be disrupted. So what, what this means is uh, just something as simple and basic as providing food for the human population is going to become a massive and difficult task. So that's a good example of, of what's coming our way. Another one is that sea level is going to uh, rise and continue to rise for centuries and centuries uh, as we go on to a hothouse earth trajectory. We're estimating somewhere between 20 and 40 meters of sea level rise could eventuate uh, way down the track. It takes a long time for the ice to melt. But you could get sea level rise rates as high as two meters a century. Uh, and that's a pretty high rate. Uh, that now comes into a human perspective in terms of uh, a very large amount of coastal infrastructure that then becomes vulnerable. And you can go on and on. It's, it's, it's not a very pretty picture when you actually start uh, looking at it in detail. Well, I'd like to leave until later the question about what human actions could save us from the worst of a hothouse world. It's important, but there's a couple things I'd like to get to first, including in the AR5, or the fifth assessment of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That was finalized in 2014, and it talked about a medium confidence that a threshold for abrupt and irreversible climate change exists. 
Does your paper go beyond medium confidence that that threshold is there? Yeah, I, I think we've got much higher confidence than that because, as we say, all of these processes that would form a planetary threshold, we've seen how they've operated in the past, so they're real processes. Also, we have a fair bit of evidence that some of them, even at a one-degree temperature rise, are being destabilized. Arctic sea ice is a good example of that. Amazon forest is another example of that, and so on. And we see weakening of, of longer-term ocean and, and, and terrestrial carbon sinks. So this isn't fanciful stuff. These things are already starting to happen. So I think we could uh, reinforce what the IPCC said and say that with new knowledge, we could upgrade that probability to higher than medium. Now we've really got to do some work to try to pin down a little bit more precisely where that threshold might lie uh, in terms of temperature rise. But does this threshold idea compare with the planetary boundaries advanced by your co-author Johan Rockström and his team in Sweden? Very much so, because what we're saying is, and the planetary boundaries are a reasonably conservative approach, saying that if we want to be really certain or with a very high degree of probability that we're going to maintain a Holocene-like state of the Earth system, then we have to make sure we avoid these thresholds and these feedback processes. So we've set boundaries for nine processes. One of them is obviously CO2 in the atmosphere, but there are others like the amount of uh, important biomes, uh, forests you can lose, uh, and things like that. So the planetary boundaries approach is actually saying if you want to be really sure that you're going to avoid the sort of hothouse earth trajectory we're painting in this paper, then you stay within the boundaries. Is the hothouse Earth pathway different from runaway climate change, as Dr. James Hansen once suggested was possible? It depends on what you mean by runaway. We never use the term because it's, it's something that, that we don't talk about in complex systems uh, theory or analysis. What we're saying is that there are other states of the Earth system which are actually stable. They don't run away, but they are much hotter than the one that uh, we've developed our civilizations in. And what we're saying is that one of those states, the hothouse earth one, could be accessible if we cross these thresholds. So we're uh, hypothesizing that if you cross that threshold, you get a period of very rapid climate change. But this isn't runaway. It's going to restabilize at a hotter state with much less ice at the poles, much higher sea levels, different rainfall patterns, and so on. And we've seen a state like that in the recent past, the so-called mid-Miocene, about 15 or 16 million years ago, uh, was just like that state, and, and the, the continents were about in the same configuration. So this sort of thing is plausible. So no, we don't use the term runaway. It's going to keep going on forever. But the Earth could shift to a much harder, much less hospitable, stable state. It worries me a bit that this paper calls for stewardship of the entire Earth's system, including the biosphere. Frankly, we've utterly failed at stewardship. The idea of humans running the biosphere is a bit frightening to me. Maybe we need to greatly decrease our numbers and impacts to allow the biosphere to self-regulate. What do you say? Well, that's a good point, and, and stewardship isn't management. They're two very different terms. Uh, in fact, stewardship, in, in, in my view of the word and, and, and its, its um, proper meaning, is that we really manage ourselves to become good stewards, which is exactly what you say, allow natural processes to reestablish. In other words, we need to protect major biomes like the Amazon rainforest. We don't manage it. We just take our pressure off of it. So I think you're absolutely right on that. And uh, I think if you read the, um, the supplementary info, we, did, we had some limited space in the main text. We go into more detail about what stewardship actually entails. But we were very careful not to use the word management, but to use the word stewardship. 
The mainstream chatter is usually about technological fixes needed to keep the civilization, we hope, going more or less the way it is. But your paper goes beyond that, calling for, quote, behavioral changes, new governance arrangements, and transformed social values. Maybe that's more important than a technical fix. Your thoughts? Absolutely. And that's a point I think we made very clearly, so I'm glad you picked up on that. Technological fixes is more of the same, and the more you look at them, the more they're taking the old cause-effect linear logic without considering that, that those actions are embedded in a complex system that may surprise you with how, how they react. So a transformed value system is, as you said earlier, we become uh, stewards of the, of, the, of the system, which means we actually manage ourselves to uh, take pressure off of the Earth system and allow it allow many of the natural processes and feedbacks to operate. They've uh, kept the place stable for about 12,000 years and allowed us to develop. Uh, and now we're really, really disrupting that. So you're absolutely right. I, I, and I think the other thing I'll just say quickly, we've had two decades of really understanding the climate change problem, and we've made virtually no progress at getting on top of it. So that just tells you, just from pure observation, that the present system is failing, failing really, really badly. So that's why we actually said... It's more than technology. It's more than fiddling a bit at the edges. Um, we actually have to really transform ourselves, our societies, and our value systems. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm your host, Alex Smith, with my guest, Dr. Will Steffen. Will is known internationally in climate circles and beyond, and he's based in Australia, but he also works with the Stockholm Resilience Center. We're talking about a new paper that lays out possible futures for the world climate, and some are livable and others not so much. So, Will, figure three in the new paper is titled Global Map of Potential Tipping Cascades. What is a tipping cascade? Well, this is like the row of dominoes, where one of these individual processes that has a tipping point tips, and it changes the Earth system. It, it can melt ice and uncover more dark ocean or land which absorbs more sunlight heats the planet more or it can emit co2 or methane to the atmosphere or both which warm the earth further and as the earth warms further more of these tipping elements then become vulnerable they start to tip they increase the temperature further some of these elements actually operate by changing ocean circulation which moves heat through the ocean uh, from hemisphere to hemisphere so there are a number of connections that once you start tipping some of these elements they change the Earth system such that they tip other elements. And it's, uh, I think the best analogy is a, a, a sort of winding row of dominoes where you, where you start knocking the first couple over and it takes off. So that's what, it, what we call a tipping cascade. And this is the fundamental process underneath the fact that the planet as a whole may have a threshold. This is very interesting to me because, uh, in a way, I've been having an argument with Dr. Guy McPherson about tipping points, and he said that positive feedback loops can work on each other and, and make each other go stronger. And in a way, that's what your graphic shows. Uh, that's exactly what we're saying. Yep, that's, that's a good way of putting it. All right. And apparently, we can never go back. Have we already knocked out the cycle of glaciers known for the past few million years? Yes, I think there's good evidence that we will not go into the next glaciation. So we'll miss that. So uh, we'll miss a glaciation for about 100,000 years just with what we've already uh, done to the Earth system. Now, some people may argue that's a good thing, but in fact, that's only the beginning of what's, what's happening if we keep on our present trajectory. Uh, and that's what this paper is arguing, is that if we keep on the present trajectory, uh, we're going to go to a much, much hotter 
state-of-the-earth system. So that, of course, would eliminate glaciations for even longer than, than 100,000 years, probably. What's our best hope for a stabilized Earth? That's a good question, and I think people in the humanities and social sciences may have a better answer than I do. All I would say is that we scientists, I think natural scientists, have to do a better job of articulating what the real risks are. And that's what this paper is intended to do. It's intended to be a wake-up call to say, we really need to reframe the risks of what we're doing to the planet's climate system and to the Earth system as a whole. I think humanities scholars and social science scholars would have some good ideas about how we actually do start getting a transformation of values, a reorganization of societies, and so on. That's a bit outside of my area of expertise, only to say that I think uh, we have enough evidence to say our present system isn't going to solve this problem, so we have to think and act at a much deeper level uh, to transform our societies. Well, I'm going to try and go a little deep here, and I can't explain it very well because I'm not a scientist, but I noticed that Dr. Joachim, or John Schellenhuber, is a co-author of your new paper, and in his 2011 speech at the Four Degrees or More conference in Australia, which I broadcast on Radio Ecoshock, he said something that always made me wonder. Now, according to my blog notes about that speech, he said, studies in physics show the temperature is unlikely to stay anywhere around the 7 degrees C hotter mark. Simple calculations about the wave patterns of matter, he said, suggest the temperature would either rest around 5 degrees or keep migrating up to 10 degrees hotter, where there's another kind of natural plateau. And your paper also talks about possible resting points based on potential energy of the system. It's deep stuff, but can you comment? Yeah, look, ours, ours roughly corresponds with John's 5 degrees. We're, we're suggesting 4 and 5 degrees. John's a, a really excellent theoretical physicist on top of everything else he knows about the Earth system. So he's attacking it from one angle. We're looking at, for example, analogs in the past. So you can see that the Earth system has existed for long periods of time, millions of years, in certain states, and then they, it transitions between these states. And one of these states we see in the recent past, of course, is one that's about four or five degrees hotter than today, much less ice, quite different uh, climate system. And that, we think, could be accessible if we cross those thresholds or get that cascade going in the next couple of decades. And there has been a kind of monoculture among some climate scientists and climate activists where it's all about the carbon but humans have plenty of other impacts, like driving species extinct or cutting down forests or polluting with plastics, and some of those could change the biosphere that supports climate stability. So I was relieved your study went beyond simple carbon counting. Do we need more of that in science? Absolutely. Um, the, the paper does focus on the climate system. But again, in the supporting information, you'll see uh, a broader view of, of the Earth system as a whole. And I think a good way of looking at it is, is we have... The Earth system is made up of two big interacting spheres at the highest level, the geosphere, which people focus on, the physical climate system, but also a biosphere. And in fact, carbon is a, is a beautiful link between the two. We think of carbon only as uh, something that warms the climate if you put too much of it in the atmosphere, but in fact, it's, it's the real currency of the biosphere itself. And uh, we're changing, in addition to burning fossil fuels, of course, we're changing the biosphere directly in a myriad ways. And that, at the moment, is actually more important than the climate impacts on the biosphere. So, yes, it's extremely important that we take a much more holistic, integrated view of the Earth system uh, and of human impacts on the Earth system. 
Well, as I said, here in British Columbia and all along the west coast of America, we've just gone through another terror summer of wildfires with massive smoke. And I wonder if the release of all that carbon from trees could affect the climate. Your paper says it's possible, yes? It it certainly is. In fact, one of the um, tipping elements or tipping processes we talk about are the vast boreal forests of Canada, Alaska, Siberia, Scandinavia. And yes, they can emit a lot of carbon to the atmosphere. So, and we see it, the best data, in fact, is from Canada, that we see long-term changes that uh, the Canadian forests were basically a sink. They were a net absorber of carbon for much of the 20th century. But around about the 1970s or so, as, as temperatures started creeping up, we saw, particularly in Western Canada, an increase in spruce bark beetle attacks on, on the trees, which weakened the trees uh, and made them more prone to disturbances. And, of course, with, uh, with uh, ever-increasing temperature, fires became more probable. And so you had this, this double whammy of, of trees weakened by insect attacks and then fires sweeping through them. And the Canadian Forest Service has done an excellent job of actually tracking the carbon implications of all that. Uh, and uh, I found that over the 30 years post-1970, those forests have gone to being carbon neutral at best and sometimes even net emitters of carbon to the atmosphere. So that's already a big, a big effect on, on the global carbon cycle. And what would be the worst trajectory, this hothouse Earth? What would it be like if humans survived to see it? Okay, if, if, if you look at, uh, for example, Australia, much of Australia would be uninhabitable. You simply couldn't live there unless people were trucking in water and you lived in air-conditioned conditions for 24-7. And you can do that around the Earth. Large areas of the tropics and subtropics become uninhabitable. Uh, as I said before, the, the world's big agricultural zones would have to change. They would, most of them would be damaged beyond repair by a rapidly ch- changing climate. Sea levels would just continuously rise. Uh, extreme weather events would be much, much worse than they are now. Uh, and John Schellenhuber himself, um, I think in that 2011 uh, lecture he gave at Melbourne, said it's not inconceivable that if we go to something like a hothouse earth, we will have a civilization and population crash. Uh, and he suggested down to maybe a maximum ca- carrying capacity of 1 billion humans. We're about 7.5 now. So this is really a collapse scenario. And that's, that's what I think the worst case scenario is, in fact, a collapse scenario, uh, that the contemporary civilization we have today simply cannot exist in a hothouse earth. Yes, and we know people have to slash greenhouse gas emissions to keep a livable world, and we've had experts on this show go further, saying we will need to reduce incoming sunlight with geoengineering. But your group adds a third way, namely, quote, enhancing or creating carbon sinks. Well, what can we do there? Well, obviously, the first thing we can do is protect and restore a lot of the the terrestrial sinks uh, that we talked about, Amazon, uh, other tropical forests, some temperate forests protect the boil, but also there's a huge carbon potential carbon sink in the ocean. The ocean's a big player in the carbon cycle, so protecting uh, coastal zones, uh, they absorb a lot of carbon. There have been proposals that that macroalgae, big seaweed, can be enhanced the growth of that, and that would uh, absorb a lot of car- carbon. Of course, you've got to get that then down deeper in the ocean to have it there for any length of time. So basically the way we, we look at it is about a quarter of the carbon that's up there today that's causing the problem actually originated from the biosphere. So getting that back into the biosphere and protecting it would actually be a big step forward. Of course, that's no substitute for fossil fuel, and that's the problem. Of a, lot, a lot of people think, well, we'll just grow trees. No, it's not a, sub- a substitute at all. All it does is, is restore some of the earlier emissions uh, from the biosphere. 
So if we want to have a habitable world, it sounds like we need to change everything, our consumption, our behavior, our attitudes. I've studied history. I have difficulty recalling such a huge revolution in such a short time frame, maybe at the start of World War II, maybe. Is it really still possible, Will Stefan, to steer Earth without going into that hellish hothouse ditch? Uh, good question. I think it's a big ask. Uh, I think we may have some chance to do it. Humans can move uh, extremely quickly. There are tipping points and radical changes, changes of state in human societies as well, often on the catastrophic side, but occasionally you see societies that reform themselves reasonably quickly. We did after World War II. That's probably the most recent example of where uh, older, more feudal systems around the world were, were torn down really by this succession of World War I, Great Depression, World War II. And there were quite different economic and governance systems that came out of that. So that was one example, but it took some catastrophic events to trigger that. Uh, this time, by the time we get to really catastrophic events, it may be too late uh, if we're right on our, on our uh, hothouse uh, and planetary threshold. So we have to have the foresight to transform ourselves before we actually get into a situation where the Earth system is out of control. Yes, foresight. That's what we need. So you have advised the Australian government in various ways, and lately Australian politics have gone further off the rails towards more coal development and climate denial. Meanwhile, as you say, farmers in New South Wales are allowed to shoot kangaroos because the drought is so awful. What now for Australia? Well, I think we're actually, if you look at Australia, uh, Australian society is somewhat in a complex systems view. We're getting much more uh, variability now in the system. Over the past 10 years, we've gone from uh, prime ministers who've vigorously supported action on climate change. We put in a meaningful carbon price. That got overthrown. Now we're going through a succession of uh, prime ministers at an increasing rate, mainly because of the climate change issue. That's the underlying thing that's destabilizing politics. But at the subnational level, we have some really positive signs. Uh, states like South Australia are already over 50% renewable. Our, our own little uh, Australian Capital Territory, which is sort of the equivalent of D.C. in, in the U.S., will be 100% renewable in, in about 18 months. And we've done that over about eight or nine years. So, and that's a city of about half a million. So you can transform really fast if you put your mind to it. And I think Canberra's crossed a tipping point where now, although there was a lot of angst about how much it would cost to get carbon out of our electricity system, now we want to get carbon out of our entire territory economy by 2045, and it's got widespread support, no problem from the Treasury and economists. So I think we've crossed a tipping point to realize we can actually do this, and it's actually going to benefit us uh, in other ways in addition to the uh, climate benefits. So I'm hoping that, that things like this, that these social tipping points can come in in time to, to help us get on the right pathway. It sounds like people and the local governments have just gone ahead well past what the retrograde national government is doing, and that offers some hope for the United States as well. Indeed. I think that's a good example, too, in the United States. And it's, there's probably a reason for that. I think the big vested interests that want to maintain the fossil fuel world operate at the big levels in, in governance, operate at the na nation-state levels, whereas people who actually understand the risks and feel the impacts already today want to get on with solving it. And the best thing they can do now without uh, getting the, the national governments moving is to get moving at the local level. And that's happening around Australia, too. As we wrap up, is there anything else you would like to tell our listeners? All I would say is make one more point to your listeners. Often people, when I talk about this paper and other aspects of my work, they say, oh, but, you know, give us hope. Can you please give us some hope? And my answer is, 
actually you make hope. People themselves make hope. And that's what we've done in Canberra. Uh, we've got a much better attitude toward this problem because we're actually going out and doing things and making a difference. So my, my response to people is you can do something. And the best thing you can do is, is get active on this, change your local politics, try to change your national politics. That'll generate hope. We've been speaking with Dr. Will Steffen, Emeritus Professor at the Australian National University and part of the Climate Council of Australia. He's the lead author of a new paper, Trajectories of the Earth System in the Anthropocene. It is available in full text for free, and you can find links to that, plus some quotes and comments, in my own show blog at ecoshock.org. Will Steffen, thank you so much for sharing your valuable time with our listeners. Thank you, Alex. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Radio Ecoshock. That was the late Professor Will Steffen after leading the landmark 2018 paper, Trajectories of the Earth System in the Anthropocene. Within a few days of publication in PNAS, this masterful study was downloaded over a quarter of a million times. Steffen worked with some of the world's leading climate scientists and climate thinkers. Two years later, Steffen and many of those same scientists took a darker view. Lust for power and profits was already setting a course for social disaster. Collapse. You can see it. Fire after fire. Never-before-seen floods and storms. Weather gone off the charts for plants, animals, winds, and ocean currents. Without drastic action. Humanity is battered beyond the tolerance of civilizations to respond. Things can move very fast. So they warned us. 250 scientists and experts. Will Stefan and I spoke again this time in 2020. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. Will Stefan 2020. This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Is it time to talk about society crashing when the climate shifts? In December, over 250 scientists and other experts published a letter in the Guardian newspaper in the UK. The title is, A Warning on Climate and the Risk of Societal Collapse. Will Steffen is one of the leading authors. From Canberra, Australia, Will Steffen, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Thanks, Alex. If Australia has become the fire zone in some years, other countries are becoming storm zones. In 2020, the Philippines and Vietnam were hit by multiple super typhoons. Nicaragua and Louisiana were struck by huge hurricanes several times. And many of those places will take years to recover, but before they can, the next big storms will hit them again. How long until a society cannot recover? I think that depends on a, on a couple of things. One, of course, is the, the increasing incidence and intensity of these extreme weather events. But the other one, which is very important, is the vulnerability of the society itself. Because when we look back in, in history, going back through hundreds of thousands of years, we can actually see societies which have collapsed, but others which have made it through uh, under the same stress. So a really important area of research, in addition, obviously, to to climate change is how resilient are societies, what makes a society resilient, and, and so on. Uh, there's a, actually a very good example from uh, the present-day United States, and that goes back, I think, four, four or five hundred years, maybe even a bit more than that, with uh, Native Americans down in the southwest of the U.S. 
and there were three different uh, societies relatively close together, and there was an exceedingly long dry period. Two of the, the societies collapsed, but the other one came through largely unchanged. So it's an interesting lesson that we really need now to look carefully at how resilient uh, our societies are, where the vulnerabilities are, because uh, we are facing situations, and we will in the coming decades, where the most vulnerable countries, I think, will be really at the risk of collapse as they get clobbered, as you said, by these multiple events, more intense events, and so on. Well, and it's interesting because even rich countries don't seem to be able to stop some of these impacts. We look at Venice, where over two decades and billions of dollars, they built a defense system against rising seas that were swamping the classic city, and they tried it this year, and it didn't work. It didn't stop the flooding of downtown Venice. So what if we can't stop continuing climate damage? Well, I think what we're going to have to do is learn how to somehow adapt to it. Uh, but if we don't, if we try to deny it or if we, if we uh, misspend the money in terms of uh, adaptation and so on, we could get to situations where we're simply overwhelmed, not just physically in terms of flooding, in terms of coastal erosion and so on, uh, but also economically as, as much of our infrastructure gets damaged. We've done some estimates uh, down here in Australia of the cost of, of coastal inundation, coastal flooding and so on. Uh, because much of our infrastructure in cities actually lie on the coastline. Uh, and there are pretty horrific projections of how much our economy is going to be damaged later this century. Uh, and, of course, once you start looking at very large numbers of percentages of GDP that, that are going to be hit, that's sort of telling you that you could face a situation where the economy unravels uh, and your society does have trouble, real trouble dealing with uh, just the general aspects of life. Well, I want to dig deeper into this conversation, but first I just want to check back with you about an interview we had in 2018, and it was about one of the landmark papers in climate science, I think, Trajectories of the Earth System in the Anthropocene. And my simplistic impression from that is there is a kind of shelf of warming, sort of stabilized Earth, as you call it, that's possible. And then there's a kind of drop-off cliff going to hothouse Earth, and that might not be survivable did I get that right, and where do you think we are in that progression now? Yeah, I think you did get that right, and where we are now, I think, is, is we're looking at, uh, at the Paris targets and can we meet them. I think there's extremely strong evidence now that we're not going to meet the lower target, 1.5. Uh, there's just too much already locked in, too much warming already locked into the system, plus the fact that we can't get emissions down fast enough to meet that one. So the best we can do is, is meeting the upper target of, of below 2 degrees or around 2 degrees. That would be stabilized Earth, I think, in our, our 2018 paper. Uh, and we don't want to underplay, though, the fact that that would still require some fairly significant adaptation measures. There would be hot, still high risks, and the most, some of the most vulnerable countries, perhaps in South Asia or Africa, could struggle to survive even, even a 2-degree temperature rise. So stabilized Earth may not lead to to large-scale collapse, it certainly would be damaging and difficult to survive. But if we start triggering these feedbacks, uh, and we published a paper a year later in 2019 analyzing where we were with some of those feedbacks that indeed led to the cliff in, in the, in the uh, hothouse earth paper, and we see that some of them are already showing signs of uh, instability. Obviously, Arctic sea ice is melting, and it appears to be melting at an increasing rate. The same is true for the Greenland ice sheet. That is melting primarily from the surface of the ice sheet, and that appears to be accelerating. Uh, we're seeing more instabilities in the permafrost uh, in Siberia. 
and we're seeing increasing drought in the Amazon basin, along with, of course, the direct human pressures of, uh, of increasing deforestation. So when you add all this up, that's telling you that the Earth system itself is becoming increasingly unstable. We don't think we've, we've crossed that planetary tipping point yet, and we don't think we will uh, if we stay within 1.5. But once you start going above 1.5, I think the risk that these tipping points could really take off, that risk rises. And that's the one that causes the, the really uh, really high-level risk, uh, not just to the most vulnerable countries, but to many parts of, uh, of human civilization. Well, I have interviewed hundreds of scientists about the severe risks from climate change, and until very recently, I'd say 99% of them attempted a positive note at the end, encouraging us to take steps to avoid climate disaster, things we should do. And only Utah atmosphere scientist Tim Garrett said a collapse of this system was inevitable, and he said civilization needs to stop anyway to save a habitable planet. Now, you and these other prominent scientists and experts say it is time to talk about societal collapse. What do you mean by that term? What, what are you envisioning? Well, well, societal collapse means an uncontrollable decline uh, in many aspects of a society. So when you look at past uh, collapses, some of them can be slow and drawn out. Uh, some of them can be very much uh, rap more rapid. But a, a contemporary example of, of a of a, at least a partial collapse was what happened to the Soviet Union after it disappeared in, uh, I think, around 1989 or 1990. And how would you define that collapse? Well, the economy went down, GDP went down quite strongly. Life expectancy for a while went down as well. Uh, there were food shortages and, and things like that. So that was a, a partial collapse. Uh, I remember going into the old Soviet Union, into Russia, just three or four years after that, uh, after the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, and, and with my Russian colleagues having trouble just to find enough food to take out and do some research uh, out in Siberia. Also, it was very lawless. I witnessed a murder in a, in a restaurant in Siberia just as part of the everyday life there. Uh, when we went out there, we didn't know who was in control. It was either the KGB or the mafia. And if you got it wrong, you, your life was in danger. So there are a lot of examples there of, of what uh, at least a partial collapse looks like. Uh, fortunately, Russia has pulled out of that, but, uh, but I think that period shows that uh, even large, powerful countries are not immune to at least partial collapse. So again, I, I say I define collapse, and, and a lot of people who actually study this, as an uncontrollable decline in a society. It doesn't mean it's going to disappear, but it means that the economy is difficult. There's oftentimes uh, health goes down, life expectancy goes down, and so on. So that's the sort of thing you look at. And obviously the most vulnerable countries um, would be the poorer ones in South Asia, for example, uh, and some in Africa, and the combination of the fact that they're already under stress simply from poor governance, uh, very poor conditions, poor health. And then when you put climate change on top of that, uh, those would be the first, first examples of countries that simply couldn't cope uh, and would start unraveling and collapsing. I'm not so sure it's just in the global south. I mean, a lot of the things you just described, sad as it is, might be said about the United States today during this pandemic. And why bring this warning out now during a terrible pandemic, Will? Yeah, uh, look, I, I think it's just time for us to consider the large, the, the high-end risks of climate change. It, it really doesn't have anything to do with the pandemic. If there was no pandemic on, I think we would still put out the same uh, sorts of warnings. But I think a lot of us are concerned that, um, I think as you noted, 
We've been uh, calling for action for a long time. A lot of people have been positive, hopeful, saying we can still do this and so on. But yet emissions keep climbing, temperature keeps rising, extreme weather events get worse. And nothing really substantive really happens at the global level. Uh, We're definitely not on track to meet the Paris targets. It's five years after the Paris Climate uh, Accord was signed, uh, and still no signs that we're even coming close to doing what's required. So I think, and also I should say, I think there's been a real reticence to discuss the high-end risks as if this will be be too frightening for people and and so on. Uh, But I think it's time we actually have to understand that if the climate system really gets out of control, we are indeed facing some high-end risks. We need to talk about them, consider them, and hopefully use this information in making better decisions. Yes, various experts say, well, look, the media, and I've even had this in email, you shouldn't cover too much bad news because it puts people in a state of depression and then they feel powerless to act and they won't do anything. But I don't know. It seems like it is time to start talking about collapse in public. Yeah, I I, I agree. And I think that the psychology is interesting there that you talk about. I'm not an expert on on psychology, but I certainly don't view it in that way. When I see a really serious threat, I want to know exactly what that threat looks like, how serious it is, whether the risks involved, and what we can do to minimize those risks or avoid the catastrophe. I guess it comes a little bit from uh, when I was younger, one of my main hobby was uh, climbing and mountaineering. Uh, and uh, when you go up in high mountains, alpine mountains or the Himalaya, you absolutely have to understand the existential risks that you face from, from avalanches, ice cliffs, weather shifts, and so on. You don't want to just get good news and say, don't tell me about those because it's, it's frightening. Well, it is frightening, but you have to face that if you're going to climb the mountain and you have to take steps to minimize the risk. So I think we need to, to sort of psychologically grow up and say, look, we have to look at these risks. Uh, it's important for our children and grandchildren that we actually do look at them soberly, get the best information we can, and then take action to minimize these risks. It seems pretty obvious to me that, that that's the way to go forward. So even when we know climate change is coming and it's going to be dangerous, can we really make a plan to survive the breakdown of society? I mean, isn't the point being that society breaks down and things don't work anymore? Yeah, I think the point is uh, we need to do everything we can to avoid that sort of scenario. Uh, and, and, and as a lot of people are now saying, time is running out rapidly to avoid that. And this is really, in a way, the fork in the road that we uh, uh, envisaged in that 2018 paper on, on Earth system trajectories, that the, the fork in that pathway between stabilized Earth and hothouse Earth probably lies this decade, maybe in the first half of the decade. Certainly, I think by 2030, we, we will have put ourselves on one of the other pathways, and it will be difficult to shift. That's why it's extremely important now that people understand the seriousness of this risk and, and understand that the students are right. This is an emergency situation, and we actually do have to make the right choices over the next couple of years. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest, Professor Will Steffen from Australian National University. He's part of a large group that just published A Warning on Climate and the Risk of Societal Collapse. How are we going to raise this will in our community? I think uh, efforts like you're doing there, uh, talking about it, I think people need to write opinion pieces on it. We need to get on the news media and and talk about what these high-end risks look like and be very careful and and, uh, and ensure that we say how do we avoid these risks as best we can. 
uh, and impress upon people that we simply can't wait anymore. We actually do have to take meaningful and vigorous action on climate change now. But the important thing is there's lots of uh, communication channels out there in this this digital world that we can use to start talking about these issues. I think the important thing is we simply have to talk about them. We can't avoid them anymore. Uh, We have to really make ourselves aware of what the high-end risks of climate change actually look like. All right, you're hired. You you can be a Radio EcoShock host. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, you do that very well, Alex. I'm just uh, saying we need to have a few more more outlets and people out there like you. I just want to make a mention of a couple of other signatories on this warning letter. Ye Tao was on Radio EcoShock a few weeks ago, and he was developing a very sophisticated equipment piece when he realized his invention might never be used because of climate-driven breakdown. And so now he's working on reflective mirrors to help our energy imbalance. Another signatory, Professor Alan Jones, caught my eye. He led a study using the DAW Global Food Security Model. That showed civilization will collapse by 2040 due to catastrophic food shortages. So his paper was Global Food Security and Food Riots, an agent-based modeling approach. So I'm wondering, Will, how do you think scientific research and public policy should change to account for possible breakdowns in the Anthropocene? You know, I think we've got a couple of challenges there. One one is the fact that, that our present government systems don't like to look at those sort of scenarios, and I think partly that's because of, of most governments around the world uh, either explicitly or implicitly support a neoliberal economic system, which argues for continued growth as if the planet is infinite and can, and can keep supporting that. The second thing, I think, is the time scale, is that most governments are operating on shorter time scales. They're operating on um, election cycles and so on. Uh, of three or four years, and that's why a projection of food riots and collapse to 2040 uh, may not uh, excite them too much, because in their perspective, 2040 is a long way away. And that, by the way, is why I don't get too excited about all countries now saying we'll achieve net zero by net zero emissions by 2050. 2050 is a long way off. Uh, it's actually very short in terms of the stuff I do, but in terms of politics, that's a long way off. So a lot of those pledges, I suspect, are somewhat empty. So I think those two things really are, are, are causing us to struggle to deal with these existential threats uh, like uh, of collapse of the global food system and so on. We, we simply have to work out how we get these sorts of analyses uh, out, out, out on the table and, and have ways we can actually discuss them uh, openly and honestly. Well, Stefan, what do you think about geoengineering, such as proposals to block out some of the energy from the sun? Yeah, I think those are extremely dangerous uh, technologies. They they are a, a bit a bit persuasive in a simple way. In that, well, if if we have an energy imbalance, let's just block off some of the incoming energy. But we don't know enough about the com- complex behavior of the Earth system as a whole to understand what the side effects might be. Uh, so, depending on what's uh, what's used to block out some of the incoming sunlight, that may affect obviously will affect atmospheric circulation which will affect the uh, precipitation patterns, which means that one country may have its uh, rainfall stolen by another country that's putting up uh, aerosols into the atmosphere, for example. And another thing, if, if, if that's all we do and keep pouring CO2 in the atmosphere, that's going to continue to acidify the ocean uh, and eventually really degrade the marine biosphere. The third thing I will say is, is that uh, the Earth is a complex system. This is a very, very simple cause-effect logic 
used behind solar radiation management. We, we still do not have any models or any good understanding to really project what might happen to the Earth system as a whole, what discontinuities, what tipping points, what shocks might occur if we actually change the incoming uh, the distribution and amount of incoming sunlight. So I think it's an extremely, extremely risky technology. But we know that we are heading towards desperate times, possibly as soon as 2030. Uh, it seems likely to me that somebody's going to try it. Uh, you may be right on that, and then uh, we'll certainly find out then what's going to happen. But the cure may be as bad as the disease is the problem there. On December 9th, the United Nations released their new emissions gap report, and they say despite a reduction in fossil emissions during the pandemic, well, as the New York Times puts it, the biggest polluters are continuing to pollute. So what kind of conversation do we require to overcome it even when we see this train heading straight for us? Yeah, I think one one of the things we need to do in such a conversation is really to talk more fundamentally about um, our present socioeconomic system. Because basically, I look, look at it this way. It's much more complex than this, but just to simplify it, uh, one approach to dealing with this problem is to basically maintain the present system that we've got, but change the technologies to non-carbon polluting technologies. Classic one here is renewable energy instead of fossil fuels and so on. But continue basically in the same direction that we're going. The other one is a much more fundamental shift. It's a fundamental shift in values, uh, lifestyles, and so on, where, in fact, we actually consume much less. Uh, economies uh, shrink and then stabilize rather than grow. Uh, and we live very different lifestyles, uh, ones that not only uh, don't pollute the atmosphere with carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, but also um, treat the biosphere uh, in, in a much more holistic uh, stewardship-type approach rather than as a resource to be exploited. So I think those two human uh, paths that we could take, those are the sort of discussions we, we actually need to have uh, on, on which direction we want to take. You know, I was going to ask you whether we should have these scary conversations with kids, but then when I think about it, really the kids are already shouting at us about this stuff. Absolutely. You can just look at Greta Thunberg, the Swedish, young Swedish girl who started the student strikes and so on. Uh, she doesn't mince words about what, what the uh, possible risks are to her generation. So they're actually ahead of us, I think, in saying, look, you're going to uh, really destroy my future if you keep going the way you're going. So those are some pretty powerful uh, concepts and words that they use. They're ahead of us in, th in thinking of worst-case scenarios and their future. So I think we should pay a lot more attention to what they're, what they're telling us older people. In 2020, we see that superstorms or fires or drought hit different countries at different times. Maybe we should be thinking in terms of collapses, plural, rather than one grand end to civilization as so many sci-fi novelists see it. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I've always envisaged so-called collapse as, a, as something that we've seen in the past in, in human societies. And it isn't one grand, everything falls over sort of scenario. It's normally the most vulnerable parts of the society or the most vulnerable countries uh, start struggling and, and then hit their own collapse in terms of uncontrollable decline in terms of living standards uh, oftentimes uh, access to food, conflict is also part of it. But these can spread. And one of the concerns is that in a highly globalized uh, world where, where the economic system is increasingly globalized, you can get a contagion effect where, where some of the most vulnerable countries start to collapse. That reverberates through the system 
uh, and generates uh, downturns and collapses elsewhere in the global system. Uh, and then, of course, there may be a point, a, tip, a global tipping point, where that becomes uncontrollable, even to wealthy, fairly resilient countries. This is extremely hard to predict. No, I don't think anyone can actually predict this, but it is not an illogic or impossible scenario. Some long-planned scientific expeditions did not go out this year due to the pandemic, but now as we're talking, I'm wondering whether some signs of collapse or severe economic troubles may damage scientific experts and efforts to study and predict as we go along. Do you see problems coming down that way? Yeah, I haven't thought too much about that because I think the the real concern is uh, not really whether scientific research and efforts can can continue, but with the the general the general public and population and the suffering that that they will feel as as there are collapses and downturns around the world driven by climate change, interacting with obviously some local vulnerabilities and so on. So I think obviously we, we struggle in the scientific community to uh, try to build up uh, the scientific community in the developing parts of the world. When I worked internationally. It was always a struggle to get uh, on committees and so on to get scientists from Africa, Asia, and uh, to some extent uh, South America. So already we have a, a, a large imbalance in where most of the science is done and where the expertise is done. And if those vulnerable co- uh, countries start start collapsing, then we're going to have problems, uh, even bigger problems, working with scientists uh, in those countries. Good example was again was the Soviet Union when it collapsed. I remember going out in Siberia to really what was quite a good forest uh, research institute in the middle of Siberia, but the scientists were out uh, pumping uh, pumping petrol and, and taking any menial job they could get because their jobs were, were completely eliminated because there was no money to pay them. So this is the sort of thing that you might see in, in the science community as, as uh, you see collapses in some parts of the world. We have to hope we can keep our satellite systems going. Yes, that's true. And, uh, well, that's, that's an interesting one, too, because uh, already we're seeing a gap in some of the satellites that go over the uh, far north and, and, and that have uh, altimeters on them. They can measure a very, very, to a very high level of accuracy what's happening on Greenland and so on. Uh, but there were some budget cuts. Some of those satellites, uh, their lifetime is ending and the replacements haven't been approved yet. So we're going to get a gap already, even in wealthy countries, in some of the data that we need to uh, monitor what's happening at the polls. So that's that's a very likely scenario. Is is that uh, scientific infrastructure and personnel may suffer as as uh, as national budgets uh, shrink or are hit by other needs. And we're heading into some difficult decades, and I worry for my poor listeners who hear you and I, and and they they agree and they're learning about climate science and they believe that this is very very serious. But then they still have to get in a gas-powered car and go to work at a job that uh, may not help the climate at all, but they've got to put food on the table. So it's so hard to bring those two personalities, those two minds together and, and, and be coherent. Yeah, that's right. And I think what that, that uh, example you gave really does point uh, to the heart of the problem. Is that this is a very deeply systemic problem, uh, and individuals aren't going to solve it on their own. We can do what we can to reduce our own impact on the environment, our own emissions. But ultimately, we have to change the system uh, to get this underway. So it's really important that we take collective action, that we get together, uh, force change in our our political systems, our economic systems, and so on. Uh, And that's the only way we're eventually going to, to deal effectively with this problem. 
What are you working on these days? I'm still working mainly on the uh, the follow-ons from that 2018 paper. So I'm working on tipping points, uh, tipping cascades, that sort of thing, to uh, try to understand how how far we can push the Earth system before it, it really starts to uh, starts to destabilize. So one of the ways we try to um, develop a guidance system for avoiding that is the so-called planetary boundaries approach, which uh, tries to define what the state of the Earth system is and how far we can push it before we really get the risk of these tipping cascades. And we're just in the process now of doing the third major um, update of those planetary boundaries, so I'm spending a lot of time working on that as well. From Canberra, Australia, we've been speaking with Professor Will Steffen, one of the larger figures in the international science community, in my opinion. And the Guardian letter warning about climate collapse was published December 6, 2020. You can find links to that and to all the science we've talked about in my weekly show blog published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. Will, thank you so much for spending valuable time with us. My pleasure. Thank you, Alex. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. Fellow Australian David Spratt has a full and fitting tribute to Will Steffen, just published in the Climate Code Red blog. David's title is Will Steffen's Crucial Climate Ideas on Hot House Earth, Tipping Cascades, and Nonlinearity. I recommend this article to grasp the essentials of Will Steffen. As a rock climber, Will Steffen took on the high mountains in Nepal and dangerous ice fields. For his work on climate, Will received awards and death threats. He battled climate deniers and hostile media in Australia and around the world. Steffen the communicator drew great scientists together, developed crucial insights and tools. He advised governments and never, to the very end, stopped trying. Will Steffen was 75. He did not live to see the new climate, to find out, but in a way, he of all people already knew. 